This is Donald Williams, author of Deeper Magic, The Theology Behind the Writings of C.S. Lewis, and you are listening to Pints with Jack. If I loved you less, I might be able to speak about it more. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 35. Jack's Bookshelf, Jane Austen. After Hours with Rachel Sherlock. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And this month, we're working our way through Jack's bookshelf, looking at the authors and the books which shaped the life and the writing of C.S. Lewis. And in the last episode, we considered Milton, and today we turn to Jane Austen, with today's quotation coming from her work, Emma. And today, we're joined by Rachel Sherlock. Rachel Sherlock is a writer with a background in literary writing and book reviewing. She's passionate about literature with a special interest in history, mythology, classic novels, and crime fiction, as well as a keen interest in language, linguistics, and the history of language. She is the host of the podcast Risky Enchantment, on which I have been a guest, and I'm very pleased to welcome her here. Rachel Sherlock, welcome to Pints for Jack. Thanks very much for having me. It's lovely to be on. I think this is in some ways, technically my first time. I think you shared an episode that we did on mm. Risky Enchantment on Pites with Jack, but this is a real pleasure to be on the podcast proper. <laughs> yes, it's been, a, it's been a long time coming. Yes. But when we decided to do Jack's Bookshelf, I was absolutely certain that you would have an author that you'd want to talk about. So I think you were certainly one of the first people I reached out to, and you came back with a very strong answer that you wanted to do Jane Austen. Yeah. Jane Austen's not really the person that you might associate with C.S. Lewis. I think people have a strange idea in their minds that male readers and writers wouldn't be interested in reading female writers, uh, which is ridiculous. But yeah, he was a huge fan of Jane Austen. So I thought that would be a nice crossover to explore. Absolutely. Uh, And what have you been up to since we last talked, since I was last on your show? Yeah, ah, I had to look up when it was. I have no concept of time <laughs> anymore. It, it was pre-COVID. It was pre-COVID. So, I mean, that's been a big bit of what I've been doing is just since COVID, I've done a lot of traveling, which has been lovely. I got to spend a month <laughs> in London, which was really great. I got to bring my mum to Rome for the first time, which was lovely. And both of our first times to Venice. Um, and other than that, it's mainly just been... I don't know, the the world ticks along kind of in the same way. We've still been doing Risking Enchantment all this time later. So we've definitely done one C.S. Lewis episode because we had a friend of the show of yours, um, Michael Ward on. Mm -hmm. We were discussing his book, After Humanity. But, you know, we kind of cover a broad range of things on Risking Enchantment. So we've done Dante, we've done Evelyn Wall, we've done Stranger Things, we've done Studio Ghibli. So it's been fun in the last (laughs) couple of years exploring a lot of different kinds of topics. Well, today I'm enjoying a stout. It was the closest thing that I had to a Guinness in my fridge. So I'm having a left-hand milk stout. Uh, Are you sharing anything today? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I am drinking a rather strange concoction, which has been made very um, lovingly by my flatmate. Uh, It's a combination of honey and black pepper and (laughs) ginger because I have a summer cold and this is a this is a cure. Essentially, we don't get that great a weather in in Dublin, and so twenty degrees. I don't know what is that in Fahrenheit. Is it like sixty eight? Must be about that. Yeah, that's like really good weather, and I love swimming. And so <laughs> I 
maybe was a little early with the sea swimming this year <laughs> and went swimming when it was still pretty cold. And so now I have a cold. So apologies if I'm a little bit raspy because of that. But this honey will, I presume, smooth over everything lovely. Well, to your recovered health. Cheers. So, Jane Austen, when did you first come across her? And what was it that got you hooked? Yeah, I came across her as a teenager. A friend of my family's gave me, I believe, an abridged version of Pride and Prejudice, which I never read. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember picking it up and thinking, oh, why would I want to read this? Because at the time, I was one of those painfully contrarian teenagers who thought like, oh, I don't like love stories and romance and soppy this and that. Because I think that's what... I don't know, the culture was telling me that Jane Austen was about. It was about, I think you mentioned just before we started recording, you know, it's men coming out of lakes and white, big billowy white shirts and things like that. Uh, and I thought, oh, why would I, why would I have any interest in it? And so I never picked it up as a teenager. And then just before I was heading to uni, I happened to turn on the TV and catch the end of the 2005 Pride and Prejudice film and mm -hmm. kind of thought, wow actually, maybe this is something I'm interested in. And tried another adaptation. I actually went straight to the Sense and Sensibility one. Ah. Because uh, I'm a big fan of Emma Thompson anyway, and Alan Rickman. And loved it. Fell in love with that film. And to, to me, it's still one of potentially the best Jane Austen adaptation ever. It's just stunning. Wow. You gave the right answer there, because Sense and Sensibility is also my favorite. And also, I would say that's my favorite adaptation yes, as well. this is great. <laughs> and once I had that kind of in, I was hooked. And so I immediately picked up the books. I started with Sense and Sensibility. I read them in sort of publication order. So then it was Pride and Prejudice. And I, and I went on from there and read them all. And it's been something that I've loved ever since. And it was just so much richer and deeper and more interesting than I could have imagined as a, as a snotty teenager being like, oh, I'm not interested in anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, actually, fun fact about that Sense and Sensibility adaptation, the scene where Colonel Brandon arrives and Marianne is playing uh, at the piano. Mm. I have been in that room. I've had dinner in that room because that house used to be owned by my cousin. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And this is just perpetuating the stereotype that all English people basically know royalty. Yeah, yeah. Or have stately homes. Well, I don't I don't have anything as good as that. I don't know. Have you seen Love and Friendship? It's kind of it is an adaptation, but it's not quite. Actually, I don't think I have, no. It's really excellent. I really enjoyed it. But they filmed all of that in Ireland. And in fact, watching it, like all of the streets, I was like, it looks like such an Irish street to me as opposed to an English one. But I did go to, the, <laughs> there's a sort of a grand house that, that they feature in it that I, I went to for my, my birthday last year. Well, let's talk a little bit about the woman herself. Who was Jane Austen? When did she live? What was her situation in life? Yeah, well, she's kind of known as a Regency author. She was born in December in 1775. Uh, she's the daughter of a rector of Steventon in Hampshire. Uh, she had a lot of siblings. She had, I think it was six brothers and one sister. I think she was one of the younger ones. I always feel like she has such an interesting position in society because she gets this really broad view because you were just saying like, there's a lot of stereotypes about England and royalty and what aristocracy looks like and what <laughs> gentry looks like. And 
for her at that time, it could mean a lot of things. Like you, you could have a title and not have a lot of money, or you could be associated with well-to-do people and be actually struggling financially yourself. So she kind of had a life where there was a lot of fluctuations. You know, like a rector is quite an important person in the society, but it doesn't mean that you have a lot of money. So she moved around with her family. She spent time in Bath, which I believe she didn't necessarily love. I think they were in a lot of kind of financial trouble then, but there was other times. She lived in Oxford and, of course, Hampshire. She stayed with her family. She had at least one particular proposal of marriage, which she ended up turning down, and she remained unmarried for her life. And so even that makes her kind of interesting because she wasn't just writing as a hobby. She wasn't just a lady who had spare time. She was writing to contribute to her her family and to kind of maintain their livelihoods. So she was writing both out of her own talent and interest, but for genuine reasons of needing to earn some money. (laughs) Uh, And because of that, I think she just has such a wonderful insight into England at that time. Like she sees the people who are struggling, and yet she's also seeing the people who are lavishly wealthy. And she kind of brings all of that into her novels. I think think that you get a real range of different circumstances of people. Like in some ways you might say, oh, well, all of her characters are relatively middle class, if not fully aristocratic. But I think there's there's such a wealth of circumstance within that that makes it really interesting. But she was someone who just loved life. And I think that comes across in her novels as well. Like she was engaged in lots of balls. She loved dancing. She loved, you know, socializing and being in nature and going for walks and having these sort of social parties. And she was a fantastic correspondent. I would really recommend there are editions of her letters. I think she's just so funny, even when she's just writing to people personally. And yeah, I think that there's a real joie de vivre in her life. Like she was just someone who really kind of sparkled to me. And she was quite successful in her life as well. But uh, at the time, it wasn't really the done thing to be a professional novelist as a woman. So she did actually write them all anonymously. And people didn't know it was her, even though she had, I think, the Prince Regent. Yeah, that's right. Emma is dedicated to the Prince Regent. So, you know, she had she had fans in high places. And yet she was in some ways had quite a small life. And she died quite young. She died in 1817 at the age of 41. But she had a very rich life as well. So it's it's she has this sort of double to her where she's this like great literary figure of history. And yet in some ways her actual life can look quite small in some ways, but it was a very, it was rich in love and rich in, in family in, in other ways. And what is it that makes her such an important and influential author? Why have so many people at the very least heard of her? I think people have heard of her because she writes really captivating love stories. But I think what makes her actually stand the test of time, because, you know, there's been a million love stories throughout history. But what makes hers, her writing special is the depth of understanding that she has of the human heart. I think when I read her books, it's funny how she can just capture those little moments in your mind and in your your heart and in your emotions as you're going through your day. You're trying to be a good person. This person is getting on your nerves. You're at a function and your dad is embarrassing you. You're talking to someone that you have a crush on and you're making a fool of yourself. Um, and even more than that, like I think she's just so great at charting how well-intentioned people can 
make mistakes and be wrong about things and lead people astray in ways that they don't mean and have to come to to reckon with that as well. I think she's just so perceptive in the way that we operate as humans, that we're kind of trying to navigate what's the best thing to do in any situation. Uh, and so I think that's that's what's her really lasting legacy is that really clear-sighted moral perspective of the human soul. And it's sort of packaged in this other part that I think is just as important, which is that it's just so brilliant and funny and interesting that I think sometimes I feel like when we're talking about classic authors, it's all like, well, this is very serious and this is their (laughs) sort of, you know, the cry of the human soul. And like I've been saying, I think she does an amazing job at, at bringing us to those sort of emotional points. But she can do it with this sort of amazing lightness of touch that can be really funny, that sort of revels in the follies of ordinary people and can highlight the quirks of family interactions. And I would really recommend when people are reading her to take the time to not just race through it for the plot, because the plots are great, but there's so much in the writing style that you can just miss if you're just sort of like powering through it. Like I know some people who say that they understood it better when they listened to it on audiobook because you can't just like skim through those bits uh, mm. that aren't maybe so plot centric that, yeah, just take the time and be aware that she's being funny. Like sometimes it's funny how I feel like we just don't engage our brains to like pick up on some things. And as soon as you're in that frame of mind, you suddenly find what she's saying really hilarious and very, very entertaining. And so, yeah, I think that's what makes her so important that she can do both at the same time. Yeah, I'd agree. I also think something else that she's very good at doing is that if you're reading one of her books and you're encountering one of the characters and you're enjoying them, just stopping for a moment and thinking about that character as a whole, what you know about mm. them, can be really instructive. And to pick Pride and Prejudice as an example, when you start thinking about the character of Mr. Bennett, I mean, we all think he's funny, etc., but yep. he makes some really poor choices yeah. that you don't actually realize until you actually sit back and think about the character as a whole and his actions as a whole yeah. and his life choices as a whole. And that's how I think I would describe Jane Austen. There's a depth to it and a particularly a psychological depth to all of the characters. No, e- even the characters that are a bit goofy and that you think are a bit comical – they are still very real. Yeah. You know, we have all met a Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think that's particularly evident to me in Emma. There's a lot of characters who are very annoying and it's easy to be like, oh, this person is so annoying. And then you take a moment and you realize, and she brings the characters to that point to say how they're figures of sympathy and pity and that as much as we all might need to roll our eyes occasionally when we're being put through something very boring, that we need to retain our ability to see see people complexly, like you're saying. Mm. Also, that book has given rise to a phrase that I call out to my wife every time she does something that I don't like. I say, it's badly done, Emma. It's badly done. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful phrase, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll speak about Austin's influence on Lewis in a little bit, but do we know what books and authors really influenced her? Uh, Yes, in some ways she's kind of behind a certain level of 
mystery to us. There's not that much documentation about her. But at the same time, there are things we do know. She did go to various schools, although not for very long. She got quite sick the first time that she was sent away to school and and almost died. And so they returned home. I think she spent another year at a boarding school, but they couldn't afford the fees. Her home life was filled with books and scholarly interest and debate. And yeah, it was a very intellectual house. And her father's library was very extensive and she was encouraged to read it. And they, I believe, yeah, they, they, her parents ran a school for boys to supplement their income at various stages. And so, yeah, it was, this, it was a house of learning and, and girls were not excluded from that. That was absolutely part of her growing up. And so we see in her writing, she directly draws from a lot of like great classics. Shakespeare's in there, Milton, I believe you were just saying about you've just done an episode uh Goethe Walter Scott they're all referenced in there and so you can see that she's really drawing on this well of great masters I think in terms of the ones that she expresses that she's reading at the time that she expresses admiration for they're not as well known anymore she definitely sort of exceeded her own influences but there were a few, there's uh, someone called Fanny Burney who wrote satirical comedy of manners. And so we can absolutely see that in the way that Austen writes these sort of comedic novels. Uh, there was another novelist called Maria Edgeworth who wrote, they're sometimes categorized as realism, but I believe the novels are also slightly melodramatic. So it's sort of playing between those two poles that are sort of so present Uh, If you study Jade Austen at university, as I did, it it always gets put up between like, you're either interested in the realist novel or the the romantic novel, meaning like the gothic (laughs) melodramatic kind of novel, which isn't necessarily a fair distinction to draw all the time. But yeah, they're they're definitely two very strong kind of trends in, in literature at the time. I think her favorite novel was, I don't remember the name of it, but it was by someone called Samuel Richardson, who I know did a lot of um, quite moralistic novels in epistolary style. So those letters, which again, if you read Jane Austen, like a lot of the drama happens in the letters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can really see that coming through. But she was also like speaking of those sort of more melodramatic novels, I think she was a huge fan of those in, in a particular way. She saw them as entertainment, but not necessarily as instructive. And so she has a, a novel called North Anger Abbey, which involves her young <laughs> protagonist devouring all of these sort of what we might call like sort of trashy novels and yeah. becoming <laughs> swept up in them and and thinking that she's in one of them and imagining that she's in this like great gothic romance and actually she's in a very realistic uh, (laughs) society where people's motivations are not necessarily less corrupt but they're less sort of um, dramatic Dramatic. and yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and she quotes so extensively from those kinds of books in Northanger Abbey that it's clear that it's coming from someone who read them and on some level kind of knows what they're about and enjoys them enough to satirize them. Like in some ways it has to come from someone who at least has a love of them in the first place. So I think the mysteries of Adolfo, which I believe my friend Phoebe, who's my flatmate, she's also on the podcast a lot. Anyone who knows me has probably heard of her, but she attempted to power through the mysteries of Adolfo recently, but just couldn't get past the amount of times the heroine swooned. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, I think in terms of influences, you know, she was she was a very dedicated Christian. So, you know, she knows her Bible, she knows her prayers, and that comes through in her writing as well, that it, it comes from this Christian tradition. I know a lot of people have written articles and various bits on 
her sort of Aristotelian influence, like her virtue ethics, although I don't think we have any hard evidence that she actually read Aristotle, but it's not inconceivable. Like I said, her, her father's library was very extensive, but yeah, there's a real clearness to her virtue framework that mm. is it feels like it draws a lot from that and since she was raised a christian she could have very easily have just got it in the water secondhand via christianity absolutely since major church figures catholic and protestant have basically taken aristotle and slapped some christian paint over the top of it and yeah. used to communicate very similar sorts of ideas yeah exactly so yeah i think that's where she's kind of drawing from but like i said in some ways i feel like she eclipses a lot of the people that she draws from well, we've mentioned Emma, Northanger Abbey, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. We've nearly got them all. Yeah. Would you mind just giving us a little bit of a sketch of her corpus? What does she write? Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, she's she, she can be kind of ideal if you're interested in, in classic literature because her corpus is relatively tight. It's kind of essentially six novels and all of them are great. So you don't, you don't have to worry. <laughs> she does have some other writings. I, I mentioned her letters already. She has some juvenilia, which is actually genuinely worth reading. I remember I read, she wrote this sort of satirical history of England, which is very funny. And I think she wrote it when she was something like 14. It's very impressive and humbling to think, you know, a 14-year-old was <laughs> writing this well. There's a couple of unfinished novels and one which was never, it's essentially finished, but it wasn't ever put forward for like publication. And so I think that one's Lady Susan. But when we're talking about Jane Austen, we are essentially talking about six novels. And there was four that she published in her life and two that were published posthumously, but were ready for publication essentially when she died. As I mentioned, Sense and Sensibility is the first one, and then it's Pride and Prejudice, and third was Mansfield Park, then Emma, and then after she passed away, they published Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. So those are her six novels. And like I said, they're all fantastic. So <laughs> in some ways you can't really go wrong, uh, but they're kind of hard I was trying to think how I would sum them up without making them sound insipid <laughs> uh, because it sounds in some ways that they're quite repetitive. Oh, they all have sort of young heroines who are finding their place in society and, and trying to live with their families and you know find love or find a future. And I already mentioned they're also kind of based in the middle and upper class of England at the time. But there's so much more than their constituent parts. Like it's interesting how I feel like she's not so easy to put in a box as much as they are love stories. I think actually Lewis points out like really only one or two of them are properly love stories in that there's so much more about the heroine's journey in terms mm -hmm. of navigating her social circle and realizing what she values and realizing how she wants to act in the world and sort of the love story happy ending comes as as a result of that journey, but in some ways isn't necessarily really the purpose of the story. I actually have a quote from Chesterton here, which I think sums it up really well, is that Jane Austen was not inflamed or inspired or even moved to be a genius. Her fire began with herself, like the fire of the first man who rubbed two sticks together. Some would say that they were very dry sticks, which she rubbed together. It is certain that she, by her own artistic talent, made interesting what thousands of superficially similar people would have made dull. Nice. Which I think is kind of a wonderful way. And I don't mean to 
say that that I don't know like it's awful to say that it might be dull but I I can totally see you know there's a thousand Mills and Boons or there's a thousand Jane Austen alikes that I don't find compelling I don't think anything comes close to really Jane Austen herself I know all of my friends constantly tell me to read Georgette Hare and they're like she's the only one that comes close and I haven't managed it yet but I will get there I promise they're so angry at me for not having read her yet but um, but for the most part yeah I'm not particularly interested in reading a lot of similar books just because I feel like what Jane Austen brings is her own talent rather than a set kind of story there's four novels which are kind of about Lewis wrote an essay called A Note on Jane Austen, and he categorizes them this way, where he says that there are four which are about moments of undeception, mm-hmm. where, like I've said, these heroines have their the sort of truth of their own actions and truth of the reality of a situation revealed to them and their their part in misjudging it. And the two that are the exception are Mansfield Park and Persuasion. And they are about solitary heroines who don't need this moment of undeception. They are actually mm. sort of correct all the way through, which again sounds yeah. like, why would I be interested <laughs> in that? It's about seeing how the rest of society doesn't recognize their worth and why they are the standard that needs to be lived up to in some ways, that they are the ones that have to bear with being misunderstood mm. and stick to their principles. And it can be really heartbreaking when you're reading it to see someone who is in the right so thoroughly sort of misunderstood and, and mischaracterized. Mm-hmm. My wife's favorite is persuasion. Yeah. And that is really frustrating as you see yeah. the protagonist again and again just sort of shoved aside, ignored, <laughs> belittled. All I'll say is it does end happily. <laughs> Absolutely. You can, you can rely on Austin for a happy ending, I have to say. <laughs> and usually at least a good wedding. Yes. Well, you've already mentioned Lewis, so let's pivot to that. Sure. In, in what ways do you see Austin influencing the Inklings in general, but Lewis in particular? Yeah, I think the most information that we have of Lewis's perspective on Jane Austen comes from that essay I mentioned, a note on Jane Austen, which is part of his selected literary essays, if anyone's looking for the the book that you can find it in. He just writes an essay, which is about what makes these books great, really. But the thing that strikes me is that there's a kind of kinship between the two of them in terms of their clear morality, which is paired with a kind of jovial spirit. So if I can, I have one or two quotes from the essay, which I think are very helpful. When he's describing the world of Jade Austen's characters, he says, all is hard, clear, definable, by some modern standards, even naively so. The hardness is, of course, for oneself, not for one's neighbours. It reveals Marianne, her want of kindness, and shows Emma that her behaviour has been unfeeling. Contrasted with the world of modern fiction, Jane Austen's is at once less soft and less cruel, (laughs) which to me speaks so much about what Lewis is trying to also get across in his writing, which is that there needs to be a core, unshakable principle of morality at the center of your life. And it's not about judging others harshly, but really working to live up to your own standards and keeping those standards very high. And yet at the same time, being joyful, like he talks about how 
it's only possible to have real comedy when you have these hard principles because he says where there is no norm nothing can be ridiculous and uh, you know that total irony doesn't work that it, it frustrates itself that you have to have these things that are ironic only because there are norms that you you live up to in, in the normal course of life and so it's only through having these really clear moral visions that you can actually find mm. the fun and the joy and and can laugh at the follies of humanity without it being such a judgment on people there's a sense in which everyone's kind of laughing together because aren't we all ridiculous rather than saying oh that person is so different from me isn't that hysterical mm. and and like putting them down in that way that there's a sense of sort of almost communal jollity which says that we're all kind of ridiculous and we're all in this together. And I think that's so central to what Lewis was trying to do. I mentioned we had Michael Ward on the podcast, so I think it's safe for me to reference the Narnia Code. And- Absolutely. Bonus points. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, the jovial spirit, the spirit of Jupiter that is so central to the line, the witch in the wardrobe is really central to his work. And, and even like, you know, the magician's nephew having the first joke be such an important part of the story out of nowhere in some ways that like, why is it so important to have this whole section on the first joke of Narnia as a kind of foundational laughter to the world? I think that's something that really is the intersection of the two authors, that they can have these these moments of joy and these moments of real moral clarity, and that the morality is absolutely important. It might happen in very mundane ways. Like it might happen on what you say at a picnic, or it might happen in who you choose to confide in, or it might happen in terms of, you know, what you're willing to say to somebody else. Like it might be choosing to withhold something because it it would be inappropriate for you to share it. Like these small things that feel like they're not happening on a big grand scale. But actually, like if we look at Lewis's, you know, theological fiction, such as the Screwtape Letters or The Great Divorce, we start seeing that actually these these things play out in quite cosmic ways because they are about the nature of your soul and how carefully you choose to guard that. I think that's really important. And I think he sees in Jane Austen that call to live a high standard of morality in a very mundane makes it sound like it's boring, but in a very day to day, in a very ordinary way. He says that about her novels, that they're essentially untragic. Like I've just said that there there's lots of happy endings <laughs> in Jane Austen. <laughs> On some level, we can also hope for a lot of happy endings in in regular life, you know, that like it's not that unusual for people to have love and friendship and family in their lives thank God, but that these are the things that we're called to. And so he says about it that her world is unexacting insofar as the duties commanded are not quixotic or heroic and obedience to them will not be very difficult to people properly brought up in ordinary circumstances. It is exacting insofar as such obedience is rigidly demanded, neither excuses nor experiments are allowed. If charity is the poetry of conduct and honour, the rhetoric of conduct, Jane Austen's principles might be described as the grammar of conduct. Now, grammar is something anyone can learn. It is also something everyone must learn, which I think is so, so perceptive of him that 
it's not only manageable, but it's also obliged that we we all need to do this. We all need to assess our own behaviors and to be clear about where our principles lie. Yeah. Well, when I was thinking about this episode in advance, I started making a mental list of how I would connect Austin and Lewis. And you've definitely hit on one of the major ones, which is the question of vision. Lewis is all about seeing things clearly and about having twisted views straightened out. Yeah. And your your comments about humor, I hadn't thought of that one, but it echoed what we had seen in this season's book, Out of the Silent Planet, when mm. all of the different races of Malacandra come together at Meldalorn when they're in the guest house. There's all of this humor, and it's all at the expense of each other, but done in a very generous way, not to put, put mm. each other down, but just finding each other kind of preposterous. Yep. And we argued in the episode where we talked about that, that this was because these were creatures that still loved rightly. And Lewis says in one of his other books that men and women, lovers find each other preposterous. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and, then, and that's part of the delight of relationship. And speaking as a married man, my wife is flawless and has nothing to laugh about <laughs> at all whatsoever. I love you, darling. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, do, I do really like that. And your point about morality, I think, is also well put. And I would also add, is morality, but mo not moralistic. Yeah. You don't feel like you're being beaten over the head no. with, or having a finger wagged at you as you read her books. But you do see the downstream consequences of people's choices. Yeah. And connecting that with, say, the great divorce, you see people becoming heavenly or hellish creatures one way or the other mm. through all of their choices, not just the big ones, but the small, as you say, day to day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so clear. I think rather than being told that you should act a certain way, you're just brought on a journey with a character where when they do the wrong thing, you're cringing. You're thinking, no, you're better than that. Why are you doing that? Or you know, maybe the first time you read it, you're shocked to find out that they're wrong and you're shocked with them. And, you know, you, you're brought on that journey of, of revelation. And then you think, I was drawn in by this person. Mm. I was mistaken. And so it doesn't need to be didactic. It doesn't need to tell you what's right and wrong. It just brings you into that world where somebody else is showing you through the, through the actions of others how to act and what is the right thing to do. So one of the goals of these episodes, these Jack's Bookshelf episodes, is to introduce our listeners to an author that they might not know much about, and also to give them a little bit of a roadmap as to how they might take their first steps in that author. So if someone has never read Austin, or at least not in a long time, how do you recommend they begin? Gosh, yeah. I think Pride and Prejudice is the famous one for a reason. I think it's it's probably the most accessible, even especially because you've probably seen some version of it. Mm. Uh, and it is brilliant. I do really love it. It's very obviously funny in a lot of places. And I think, I think it is a good place to start if you haven't read any of them. Now, if you've read any of them, you've probably read Pride and Prejudice. So you might need directions after that. In which case, I like personally, I would suggest Sense and Sensibility, which I adore. But honestly, if I'm saying that, I don't know if I have a really good reason. I think it is personal preference. Like I have friends who love Emma uh, and I find Emma kind of difficult. I think Austin actually wrote somewhere that she said, 
that Emma was supposed to be a novel in which she took someone that you shouldn't like and made you like her. Mm. She's in some ways quite spoiled and she's in her own little world and trying to control things in her own way. And I find her, I I get very short tempered with her. (laughs) Uh, And then, and then I come around her at the end. She, her redemption story is all the better for it. And so that's what makes it great. But yeah, I think in some ways after that, it becomes personal preference. And so I think what I would actually say is there's probably two I wouldn't start with. I wouldn't start with Mansfield Park. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's the hardest to love. In fact, it's almost the inverse of Emma in that the main character is so good that you almost can't like her. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not at all to say that Mansfield Park isn't a good book. It's actually brilliant in a lot of places. I think Lewis says that it's, if in places, almost the best, yet as a whole, the least satisfactory. Hmm. And so, and it's also kind of, I think it's one of the longest ones as well. So it's just not one I would start with. Uh, But if you are interested in it, there's some really good defenses of it because sometimes people really take against it, which I don't think is fair either. I think it's just um, maybe slightly slightly less good than some of the other ones. But I know Hayley Stewart has written a blog post which has a big defense of Mansfield Park. (laughs) And she has a book called uh, Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life. So if anyone wants to look into that, it was, I I found it very, very readable and enjoyable. So yeah, I don't think I would start with Mansfield Park. And similarly, uh, I also wouldn't start with Persuasion. Don't worry. I know your your wife loves it. (laughs) I'm not saying that at all because it's not good. I'm saying it almost because it's it's potentially her best work. And I think you appreciate it as her best work when you've read her other works. Absolutely. And it's a little bit more mature. I don't want to say it's more, it is melancholy, but that isn't to say it's not funny as well. It is very entertaining and funny, but it has this sort of deeper sadness to it than the others have, at least I find. And so I think it fits in well as the kind of final book of her writing career. And so I would keep it, if not to the very end, at least after you've read a couple of her books, because I think you appreciate it all the more when you've got a couple of her other books behind you. But like I said, if you're only going to read one or two, definitely do read (laughs) Persuasion because it is amazing. Hmm. I think that's good advice. And I hadn't really thought about it in terms of Lewis, but that's sort of what I do when I'm recommending Lewis to people. Generally, I say, what literary genre do you like? Go read whatever you wrote in that genre. But there are a few books that I do try and keep back at least until somebody's read one or two, because they are richer, but also a little bit harder. We have the Mm. constant argument about, do we have faces and where it should fit in Lewis's canon? (laughs) But I think that is actually a very good parallel to persuasion. Yeah. I would never send someone to that first. Yeah. But if you've you've read a little bit of of Lewis prior to that, namely his best book, The Great Divorce, you're, you're much better prepared for what you're about to encounter because there are other things going on there. And I would say they're subtler and more layered. And I almost think you're better prepared to be surprised. I find To yeah. Face is such a surprising read in a really great way, but you're reading it going, this is not at all what I expected from a Lewis book. <laughs> yes. And I think you almost get an extra layer of enjoyment coming at it from knowing what he's done and then being like, wow, this is the same writer. This is amazing. Like, I can't believe he has such range. So mm. Throughout this interview, we've mentioned various adaptations and... Uh, 
one of the things that I did when I was back in San Diego is I would host, I'll actually have host the next door, ostentatious evenings or ostentatious afternoons. Amazing. So some friends who lived next door, we would all pile in and invite a few extra people, including a girl that I just started dating, who later became my wife, (laughs) to watch a Jane Austen adaptation. And there are some truly marvelous ones. And I think that's also a way into Jane Austen or even better, read the book, then watch the adaptation and start picking holes in it because that's a lot of fun. Yeah. I just wanted to get your hot take on what you think are some of the best slash worst movies and adaptations of Austen's work. (laughs) Yeah, I've said the Sense and Sensibility, the movie version. A lot of the times I like uh, the miniseries, but in this case... Movie version all the way. Mm-hmm. I actually, I've tried to watch the miniseries. And it, it, like, I think it is very technically pretty well done. But for me, it just doesn't hold a patch. And so I don't think I've ever actually finished it. But again, it's kind of the inverse for Pride and Prejudice. The miniseries is the way to go. Absolutely. BBC. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> With Jennifer L. as Lizzie. She's amazing. I mean, I do think, like I said, I, the first thing I ever saw was the 2005 film. I think it has its place. I think, you know, you can watch the story in an evening. It's got beautiful music. There are some mm. kind of anachronistic choices that I find very strange. Yeah. Those those pulled me out of it. That's what yeah. that's what ruined it for me. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. I also don't think you get the twist of Mr. Darcy in it, anywhere close to what you get in the BBC version. Yeah. In the BBC version, I remember being actively shocked because I was <laughs> I was watching that live as that was coming out on the BBC. I am that old. Wow. But in the movie version, you kind of see it coming a mile away. Yeah. So I'm not totally a hater of that movie i think i think it has has some strong elements to it i think it is good i just don't think it's nearly as good as the mini series mm-hmm. other ones i like i really love the there's yeah it's interesting because there's quite a lot of adaptations of emma and the one that mm-hmm. i think is the best is not one that i feel like is talked about the most it's the itv mini series with ramola garai oh i have watched that i did enjoy it i thought you were going to say clueless Oh, right. I mean, that is great. I have to say, Clueless is a fantastic, really fantastic, just a great example of how to do a modern twist on something. I think mm-hmm. it is just so much fun. I really love Clueless. But for for what I consider the most sort of like the book on screen, I think yeah. the ITV miniseries for me with um, Johnny Lee Miller is Mr. Knightley. I just think Ramola Garai, she's a great actress. She's in a lot of things and she's she's very captivating. I think she gets that that two elements of Emma so well where she's both very charming and engaging and also spoiled and selfish. The worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did like the recent one that came out with Anna Taylor-Joy, but I don't feel like... To me, it's not the definitive version. Mm, It was very pretty. It was very pretty. And there's so many versions of Emma and also of all of the Austens that I don't think that every one of them needs to be that kind of definitive book to screen. Mm -hmm. I think there's room to do those, those different angles or this like particular aesthetic take on it. But... Uh, I did enjoy it. I did find they do that kind of thing where they undercut the proposal scene, which I didn't really think worked. Mm. But I did like a lot of elements in it. Like, I think it's it's great that somebody made that film. I'm just glad that there's also, to me, like the perfect Emma, which is the, the ITV series. And after that, I don't know if I have very strong opinions on the other three. I don't actually know whether I've seen a Persuasion 
adaptation, which is I clearly need to remedy. Yes, there was a one that came out very recently with the same actress that was in Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh yeah, I certainly didn't watch that one. <laughs> so so I made the meme, oh, the Fifty Shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted. It it was pretty terrible. <laughs> That's that's, yeah, well, that's a, at least you got to make a pretty good joke out of it. <laughs> yeah. Another one that I did like, again, for in and of itself, it's so far from being the definitive one, but have you ever seen Bride and Prejudice? It's like a Bollywood adaptation. I think I did at university, yeah. I have a lot of friends who really, really enjoyed that. I've just found it fun because you know what story this is based on. Um, it's, not, it's nice to see a little, a little bit of a twist. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what I, you know, that's what I was driving at with there can be so many versions. When there's so many iterations, you don't have to feel quite so precious all the time yes. because it's not your only <laughs> shot at getting this. And and since most of them have at least one version that feels like the definitive one, uh, at least to somebody, I think that there's room then to have iterations that don't feel so closely tied. And you can have those, yeah, like a Bollywood version or there was definitely a YouTube TV or a YouTube series that did like a modern take on, yes. on it as well. I actually bought the set of that for my sister because she loved Pride and Prejudice. And I watched the, the YouTube series as it was coming out. Um, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. That was it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I did enjoy it. I thought, it, I thought they did quite a fun job on that as well. And then, yeah, the other one I would recommend, I think I mentioned it already, is Love and Friendship, which I was not expecting to enjoy. I remember when it came out and there was a lot of media coverage of it, which was maybe like in a similar vein to the, the new persuasion of like it being like, oh, the saucier, darker, <laughs> more, uh, you know, scandalous take on Jane Austen. Because that's what Jane Austen fans absolutely love, of course. <laughs> I know, exactly. I was like, well, why would I want to watch that? But I finally watched it, and it's by the uh, director Whit Stillman, who I believe has, he he's one of these people who has like a select filmography and people really enjoy a lot of his movies. I, I recently watched another one of his, is it Metropolitan? Loved it. It was fantastic. So uh, yeah, I really liked that movie and I was not expecting to. So I, I would actually recommend it. It's based on one of her, I think it's one of her juvenilias or maybe one of her, maybe it's Lady Susan that it's based on. They kind of confuse me because Love and Friendship is the name that some of her juvenilia is sold under, but I don't think that that's actually what that film is based on <laughs> i think it might be based on lady susan but i would really recommend that film i think it's again it does a slightly quirky aesthetic style but i really enjoy it so those are the ones that i like the only other movie that's popping into my head at the moment is austin land and it's basically about a woman who's obsessed with jane austen who spends her life's fortune to fly to england and sort of play the part in sort of an immersive jane austen reality um it's kind of goofy but i do just love the presentation of the character uh, to to let people out out there know that there are some people that love jane austen well just just this much yeah a friend of mine was actually just recommending me that this weekend i would also say keep an eye out uh, austen is the type of author who gets her her works put into plays a lot. I've been to quite a few plays of Pride and Prejudice and things like that, and they've all been very enjoyable. So, you know, there is more than just films to experience. There's, there's all kinds of opportunities. So yeah, keep an eye out. Your local Amdram group or theatre group might be putting on 
Emma or Pride and Prejudice or something like that. I know I definitely saw an open air version of Pride and Prejudice and everyone had brought picnics and it was all very <laughs> well to do and, and it was great. Yeah, when Marie and I were dating, I took her to see Persuasion the Musical. Wow. Which I would say by and large was pretty good. Uh, although they tried to do the the scene where somebody falls, they tried to do that in slow motion and it was just kind of goofy and really took you out of it. But um, the it was great. Rachel Sherlock, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been so much fun. And as the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell people where they can go to find out more about you, your work, listen to your podcast? Absolutely. So you can find out more about me on my website. It's rachelsherlock.com. And uh, you can find links to my podcast there, Risking Enchantment. Uh, you can also get my podcast on all of the usual apps, on Spotify, on iTunes, and all of those places. So I'm pretty easy to find an Instagram account for the podcast, Risking Enchantment Podcast. And I am on Twitter and on Instagram under the handle Seeking Watson. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks again to Rachel Sherlock for coming on the show. Thank you to our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll. Thank you to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Matt1, Matt2, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week, offering all of the prayer requests from our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and tell someone in your life that they have very fine eyes. And so next episode, we're going to be moving from Dublin to Illinois and moving from Jane Austen to Dorothy L. Sayers as Andrew interviews Dr. Crystal Downing, one of the co-directors of the Wade Center about Sayers. And please join us then when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>